Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 25 on that list, 1962's To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. Based on a novel? Yet another one. One that we both have read, in fact. Yes, that's true. It's been a long time for me. I don't know if I can really distinguish between the film and the novel anymore. So how recently have you seen, or rather, read the novel? Uh, Only a few years ago, like two years ago. Okay, so that context will be helpful for us. But you had not seen the film before, had you? No, I had not. Only read the novel. Some viewers may also have that experience, so maybe they'd be best served through a plot synopsis. To Kill a Mockingbird is the story of Scout Finch, a young girl from 1930s Alabama. She and her brother Jem enjoy playing around their home, where they speculate about shut-in neighbor Boo Radley and make friends with out-of-towner Dill Harris. Their widowed father, Atticus, is a lawyer in town and has a strong set of morals which he shares with his children. Early on in the film, Atticus is, is appointed to defend a black man in town who has been accused of raping a white woman. Shortly after taking on the case, Atticus goes to guard the jailhouse one evening in case of a lynch mob. He brings only a lamp and a book. Despite his instructions, the children follow and find a lynch mob at the doors of the jailhouse. Atticus attempts to talk them away, but the mob is adamant. When Scout, Jem, and Dill reveal themselves, Scout is able to shame the mob into leaving. The trial begins shortly after, and Mayella, the woman who was raped, claims that Tom, the black man, came to her house to do a menial task and then raped and beat her. However, Atticus points out that the rapist would have needed to use his left arm and Tom's is crippled. Atticus insinuates that Mayella's father, Bob Ewell, was the one who had beat her based on his heavy drinking, bad temper, left-handedness, and racism. Tom testifies that Mayella often asked him to do little tasks for her and that she kissed him, sparking her father's rage. He testified that he helped her because he felt sorry for her, and the weight of this statement in such a racially problematic town dooms him. He is found guilty. Shortly after the trial, which Atticus believes can be overturned in appeal, news is delivered that Tom is dead. He had attempted to run and was shot dead by a deputy. Atticus travels to tell Tom's family, and Bob Ewell arrives drunk and spits in Atticus's face. Jem witnesses the altercation, and the two go home. A while later on Halloween, Scout performs as a ham in a school pageant. At the end, she can't find her shoes or dress and is forced to walk home in her ham costume. While walking home with Jem, the two are attacked, and though Jem suffers a broken arm, the two are saved by an unknown helper. Back at their home, the man is revealed to be Boo Radley. The sheriff arrives and announces the attacker, Bob Ewell, is dead, having been stabbed. Atticus fears Jem stabbed Bob in self-defense, but the sheriff believes Boo killed the attacker to save the children. He refuses to press charges, claiming that Bob fell on his knife, as he sees dragging Boo into the public eye would be sinful. Scout notes the similarity to a story Atticus told her about his father, who cautioned him that killing mockingbirds with his first gun was a sin because all they do is make music. And the film ends. That conclusion feels somewhat non-secretorial to me. Yeah. The way that, well, to bring Boo into limelight, he calls it, would be a sin. Yeah. I don't really see how that is 
accurate. I understand what the film is going <laughs> for, right? The idea that this is a case in which justice is not bringing this up to the law, right? It's retaining this kind of de facto solution mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to write it or reorder it. I, I get that, but the 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 explanation that Heck, the sheriff, gives is pretty lame duck. Yeah, well, and we kind of know that the sheriff isn't a great guy. Why is that? Well, he seems to... I mean, isn't he part of the lynch mob? No. Oh. They gave him the runaround... And they're kind of explaining this while we're looking at the children's perspective. Oh, yeah. He says, okay. oh, yeah, we, we sent Heck over here because that's where he thought we'd be. And we kind of slipped in behind him. So you're not going to get his help. Gotcha. Well, also, I mean, I can't expect, I don't know, maybe this is my own prejudice about 1930s white people <laughs> and cops. Uh, that, you know, he's willing to fudge the law there at the end to save Boo Radley. Uh, if, if he's willing to do that, I can only imagine he's been willing to let lots of other things slide and likely racially problematic ones. I don't know. I mean, this is supposed to be situated as the exceptional moment in that this has not occurred. This is a choice that these characters are making because justice has been served and now we don't need to redress it. But it seems odd given most of the film is concerned with Tom Robinson's trial, right? It's the center of the film. It takes like about half an hour so a whole fourth of its runtime yeah to have this positioned in plot structure as a kind of second climax and denouement it seems weird that something wasn't done for tom right when tom runs away yeah wouldn't justice be not shooting him like i know it wasn't heck behind the gun on that one and we're given the explanation that the guard meant to shoot his arm right just to to stop him slow him down and then to recapture him but he missed his aim and killed him yeah and i think that's i think that's a pretty lame excuse it seems like a lame excuse but it's delivered in a way from atticus that is hard to read like i think you can see that as him saying i believe this excuse because we know atticus is a great shot and that people like heck and assumedly his underlings are not so there's, right. I can't understand why else you'd put that scene of him shooting the rabid dog in the film, yeah. other than to say it's a big deal that Atticus can shoot and no one else can. Or this is Atticus beat down by this society and is just giving the explanation to his kids, even though it's a lie. Yeah, I, I also wonder, you know, how straight it was meant to be taken in the 60s versus how straight we sort of take that today with our cultural context and uh, sort of uh, hindsight, right? It's also incredibly loaded, right? It's incredibly fraught for us to think about a police officer shooting a black man, right? Yeah, and maybe in the 60s, the understand. I don't know, when I, uh, because this also happens in the novel, although I think in, well, maybe I am misremembering the novel, but I thought he was in prison already, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, and he tries to run from prison, but that I, again, I could be misremembering. It's been over a year since I read the novel. Um, regardless, it's just hard to look at that and, and think, you know, that they actually missed aside from, I guess the point of the, of the dog, um, 
episode, which I think in the novel, at least my reading of it, is that that's more to show that Atticus will do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. He will resort to violence when it's when it's absolutely necessary, which, I mean, a rabid dog in the 30s, you have to kill it, right? And that Atticus is capable of violence, but then we'll, you know, and we know that he's a good shot, but then at the, uh, at the lynch mob, he just takes the lamp and the book. He doesn't take a gun, even though we know he's good with a gun. Right, because he won't use violence unless you unless it's absolutely necessary. Although I would say maybe defending a lynch mob might be absolutely necessary too, even if not. A, I mean, it would be a losing battle. It makes me wonder what his play was if the children don't show up and Scout inadvertently talks them down, right? Because she's just innocently commenting upon the guy who visits them earlier and right. is paying with hickory nuts, right? So it's obviously that Atticus Finch has done him a kindness and now he's turned around basically spitting in his face for it. And it's like, what What were you going to do, Finch? Like, were you going to step aside or get completely beaten? I don't understand what his plan was there. Yeah, and I, and I, if I, again, if I remember correctly, I think in the novel it's a much more drawn out sort of thing where Atticus maybe actually can kind of talk these guys down or I don't know. I mean, in in the sort of larger sense of the story, we understand that Atticus is above violence, right? Uh, but realistically, how, you're going to stop a lynch mob with nothing. It, I mean, he's either going to get he's either going to get pushed aside or or get caught up in it and killed himself, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, he's saved by Deus Ex Machina in that situation, and it's yeah. It's not clear how he was going to handle it. And I think that's important because I think the film is trying to illustrate that with these moments. Yeah, I think you're right. So ultimately, Ethan, I am somewhat troubled by this film. I remember liking it a lot as a child. I know all of my family really loved it as I was growing up. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's entirely earned or if it is. I'm not sure we shouldn't be more critical of this film. Well, and I I think that a lot of that comes from the fact that this feels like a f- pretty progressive film for the early 60s mm-hmm. and we as sort of a society have m- moved on so what w- what he's what Atticus is doing in this film feels t- today much less of a large sacrifice right it it, it feels much more simplistic than it than it did in in the early 60s i think you know what i mean well i would argue that the concept the idea was never simplistic but i think this film portrays it as a very simplistic thing yeah to its detriment right so my thesis for this film is that this is a film that everyone has a fondness for that i've talked to but i really want to temper our what i think is nostalgia with you know, recognizing that this is a powerful film for its time, but nonetheless a limited one. Yeah. And I think the plot structure is really my key to this here. I have the pivotal scene being Atticus's closing argument, right, where he sets out just sort of that basic rightness that we hear about in our last episode, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Yeah. which I think is good, but I think you are running parallel with this the Boo Radley narrative, the Bill Dungsman of Scout in this way. Yeah. And it all acts as the trial that is secondary to this Boo Radley thing, right? All of that is to stage 
for this other narrative, which is exclusively white. And even in the court thing, we have this white savior who is revered by the black people in the gallery. And it just comes off as like a little Uncle Tomish. Yeah, the the question, I guess, of this film is, you know, is Atticus going, is he really truly going out of his way to do what's right? Or is he doing the bare minimum? He's doing what's right. And the bare minimum is something to be expected. And I know that was harder to attain then in that climate than perhaps now or in other climates. So that should still be upheld, right? And I think in 62, that still should be something that's upheld and still seen as important. But I think the way in which it is treated as exceptional that he does that is a little too heavy-handed, right? I think that is really aggrandizing his role in the situation for doing his job. Right, yes, exactly. Atticus, at the end of the day, with some some distance from it right and with with a critical eye he he is not exceptional right he's only exceptional in this case because the bar is so low right but he is Mm -hmm. you're right he is just doing his job and he is is somebody with a basic level of decency and again the bar is just so low right yeah i have more to say about this but i think we should get to that scene just to hear some of it i had to cut down a lot of it because it is like a four or five or six minute scene I tried to reduce it to two or three minutes just to kind of get the heart of it, but we'll come back and talk about it afterward. She did something that in our society is unspeakable. She kissed a black man, not an old uncle, but a strong, young Negro man. No code mattered to her before she broke it. But it came crashing down on her afterwards. The witnesses for the state, with the exception of the sheriff of Macon County, have presented themselves to you gentlemen, to this court, in the cynical confidence that their testimony would not be doubted. Confidence that you gentlemen would go along with them on the assumption, the evil assumption that all Negroes lie, all Negroes are basically immoral beings, all Negro men are not to be trusted around our women. An assumption that one associates with minds of their caliber. And which is in itself, gentlemen, a lie. Which I do not need to point out to you. And so, a quiet, humble, respectable Negro who has had the unmitigated temerity to feel sorry for a white woman has had to put his word against two white peoples. The defendant is not guilty, but somebody in this courtroom is. Now, gentlemen, in the 
this country, our courts are the great levelers. In our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and of our jury system. That's no ideal to me. That is a living, working reality. Okay, the reason I picked this is I think, unequivocally, this is the central, pivotal scene of the film. The yeah. one everyone thinks about when they think about To Kill a Mockingbird. The reason I have it here is because I want to recognize that the things Atticus is saying about basic justice is right. Right? It's the same way that Jefferson Smith in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is right. But I think it is the context, it is the situation of the scene in the rest of the film is the reason why this scene feels a little weird to me where Mr. Smith Goes to Washington does not, right? Mm -hmm. I think this is because immediately following this, after the conviction of Robinson, we mentioned all the black people in the gallery stand up in sort of a reverence for Atticus as he passes through. Right. And that's such an emotionally charged moment. It's hard not to get caught up in it. But when you look at it more critically, you think he's just doing what he's supposed to do. He shouldn't be this white savior figure. And it feels uncomfortable to me that he has become that and how easily a lot of the viewers, in my experience, have accepted that as a noble and exceptional thing when it is something that we should just recognize on a day-to-day basis as required. Yeah, and, and I think that this goes to show, you know, why people were so upset with the 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 novel's sequel, right, that came out just a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Ghost at a Watchman, right, where, and which I have not read, but from what I understand, right, it, it breaks down a lot of this... Um, sort of ideal view of Atticus revealing that, you know, he's not this sort of, you know, perfect white knight, white savior sort of figure. He too also carries prejudice and, uh, and, and I guess racist views. Again, I haven't read it. Um, but it sort of makes him a a three-dimensional character rather than a sort of, um, I don't know, perfect sort of, I, I, he's made into, yeah, he's, he's Paragon-esque in the film and people see him as Paragon-esque and they revere him for that. And that's why he's so high on all the lists of film heroes or heroes in general. People think, oh, who's your favorite character? Oh, it's Atticus Finch, right? You hear that a lot. And you think, I understand what he's doing is right, but it's merely right. I don't see how we see him as, a moral exemplar for just doing what's right. Now, again, in 1932, that would have been big. In 1962, that still would have been big. In 2019, it's what should be expected. But I think regardless of the time, regardless of the context, you you have to want something more for your paragon, right? I don't think that's enough just doing the right thing. Yeah, and I wonder how much of this at the end of the day comes down to the fact that this this film and the novel really are set through the eyes of a six-year-old girl. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She, When you're six years old, your parents are um, invincible. They are, uh, 
you know, the smartest people you know, you know what I mean? They, they can take on this kind of mythical status. And so even as a film that is sort of this retrospective look at her, at Scout's childhood, right? Uh, he still looms large as this, you know, glowing, shining, idealized figure. And that troubles the narrative, right? When we, when we take a step back and look at it, particularly from, you know, 60 years later. Right. And the idea that civil rights is instrumental to illustrating Atticus's character feels wrong, right? It should not be a yeah. secondary thing. So everyone says, oh, think of how progressive this film was in 1962. Say yes, but it's used just to identify Finch as someone we should get behind, right? To pet the cat moment and or save the cat, I think is the actual term. It's a save the cat moment. And that shouldn't be done with civil rights and issues so important that should not be secondary in this film. It should not be given equal billing with the Boo Radley story. Yeah, and and cause you're right. I mean, I think there is a strange dual narrative here, right? Because it, it is at the end of the day about Scott and, and or Scout Scott Scout and Boo Radley, and it does kind of it's particularly in the film. It, that does feel sort of like weirdly tacked on or weirdly parallel. It, it, it is strange, right? I, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's saying these two things, this very important civil rights case that is a mishandling of justice and a case ultimately of the same guy that's involved in the other case attempting to murder Atticus's children, they're the same thing, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't quite feel right to me. And I know I, I feel like my complaints or my disagreements with the way this film is handled, the way it's structured plot-wise and thematically, sounds like I'm really down on this film. I'm not very down on this film, but it's given such a high status in our society, even today, I feel like. Yeah, no, I think it is. Yeah. That I'm kind of like wanting to question that. I'm wanting to push against that a little bit. Yeah, and I think we should, right? I, I think we should not take this film at face value i think that we can appreciate it for for all that it is right and and yeah we can enjoy that atticus is a is a a, a sort of almost mythical character now right very important for a lot of people um but but we should dive below the surface a little bit i think that you know a film like this uh particularly something that is already a retrospective right a, a looking back uh it, it invites that uh, you know, and, and I think it invites us as a society now that is that has moved on a little bit, at least since, you know, the 60s to to look back just as Scout sort of does. Right. Um, and perhaps we should take a more critical eye than even she does in the narrative. I agree. So maybe we should talk about our three questions. Sure. But first, a note from Anchor. So, Ethan, back to our three questions. Yeah. What do we owe to this film? Well, uh, you know, I think that there, just like we talked about with uh, Smith Goes to Washington, I think there is very much an idea of these sort of lone men doing what's right in the face of a, you know, an institution that uh, is, is morally corrupt, right? I, and I think that that 
is hard to get away from, you know. And and this is just another s- sort of sense of, of rugged individualism, right? That like one man alone can stand against, you know, the evils of society or the evils of the government or the evils of whatever. Um, and I think that that, the- that theme gets played out again and again and again and again uh, because it's effective. Yeah, I agree with that. I think in this case, as we've well expressed, that it might not be entirely well situated or well placed. Right. I think people, as we mentioned, revere Atticus Finch as a character. Yeah. And we have some qualms about that. But I do think we owe that sort of paragon nature to this film. Right. This character obviously wouldn't exist without this film. It would in the book. But the film, of course, is always going to popularize a book more than the book itself. Right. I think... We owe a couple other small, small things. Like, I feel like we have a touch of the Goonies in this film mm-hmm. with Boo Radley, which is played by Robert Duvall, which never seen him young before. Right. An interesting choice. I also think there's a little bit of the, you know, the whole left-handed criminal thing. Yeah. It's popularization. <laughs> you see a lot of it here. Maybe I'm just sensitive to it being left-handed, but it's like, how is that really admissible evidence? I mean, they kind of handle it well, I think, in this film, but that's kind of a a detective trope now, right? Yeah. And not to say but, that this film originated it. I'm sure it certainly did. I'm sure there's plenty of crime procedurals and noirs that do it before, but I feel like this is the one that's most readily as a reference. Yeah, and, and I think you're right to... to you know zoom in on the uh sort of goonies vibe this this you know buildings roman sort of coming of age kid kids doing things you know i mean this because this is a film at some point about a loss of innocence right that like scout comes out on the other side knowing that the world is a darker place Mm -hmm. um a, a less pleasant place to be uh and and that's not necessarily new uh by any stretch of the imagination but this film does it well yeah, and I think that that continues to get sort of played out, uh, perhaps with direct reference to To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, does this film hold up? You know, and this question I will answer with a, with a pretty resounding yes, I th- and I think that it does uh, for a couple of reasons. One, this film was, re- I, I found it to be remarkably modern in its cinematography, in its use of music, um you know just just as sort of a a film that you watch right aside from the fact that it's in black and white this looks a lot like you know other sort of coming of age films that come after these sort of lightly feel good films that do touch on heavy things you know what i mean we see this a lot these are movies that i think of as like christmas movies that we would go you know with my family would go to see like a light christmas movie that you know it is fun and bright and then it gets dark for a little bit and then everybody comes out okay at the end for the most i mean all the white people i guess <laughs> come out yeah, okay at the right. end right like let's not even mention how the Robinson family is affected by this and completely discarded in the narrative. Yeah. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, it's scout story. Right. And so, which again is maybe problematic, but it is, this is sort of, this is a at the end of the day, it's a feel good movie with some heavy implications. Right. Uh, and I think that gets, that gets done all the time. Every year there are like 10 movies that come out that are, you know, some sort of reworking of this in some way or another, and whether it's thematically or narratively or or both or, or whatever. 
I don't disagree with you, but I think the pacing is a little too leisurely for a modern film. It is yeah. long, and I don't think a lot of the scenes are situated in a way that makes sense in terms of a modern film. Like, you really don't get a 30-minute denouement in a modern film that you yeah. really have here. You really don't get a lot of it in films of that time or prior to it, right? We haven't talked about something like Casablanca yet, but there's a climax, and then, like, 15 seconds later, the film ends, you know? like Yeah. I think... It's an interesting choice. Maybe with Bill Dungerman's, you are looking for something like that, a more leisurely kind of move through it. But I feel like I I lose some patience for that now. This, you know what? Honestly, the pacing feels like a TV movie. I think that like Hallmarky mm. movies, TV movies uh, continue to ape this. I think that more mainstream films and what we think of as good mainstream films have moved away from that. Uh but as a sort of hokey um, formula, I think that that still exists. You know what I mean? That sounds right. So our final question, Ethan, do we care about this film? I, yeah, I think the answer is pretty resoundingly yes. I, you know, all the, all the sort of problematic issues aside, um, I think that this film has had a profound effect on a huge number of people Um and I think that it does do good work. I think that, you know, when you when you see it at very face value and you're white, um, it, you know, it, it's got a good message. You know, do the right thing. People are, you know, everybody deserves justice. Everybody deserves to be treated like a person. But, you know, but there are a lot of good things to be pulled from this film. That's not to say that there are, that those things aren't necessarily problematic or that there aren't other things that go along with it. That, that we should consider but but yeah i so the answer is yes yeah i would say i care about this film i think it's an important film but as i have cautioned throughout this episode i don't think it's enough right i think we tend yeah. to lean on a film like this as a crutch and say like oh look we solved racism in 1962 and it's not right. a problem and i think it overshadows issues by simplifying them Yes. And I think that's a problem. So I will say I care about this film, but it is a mere stepping stone. It is not the destination. And I think people too often confuse the two. I, I think you're spot on. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. We're going to return next time with number 24 on the list, 1982's E.T., the extraterrestrial. E.T. And next week, we will also be back with our rundown. Yes, the rundown. Which I think is installment 15. Oh, jeez. So look forward to that. But until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Matt, did you know that it is a sin to reveal a spoiler? There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. 
and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.